Usually it's against the law to use inside information for financial gain, but here's one example where it's being encouraged. What if you knew the genetic information inside a horse's cells to determine if he or she should be a sprinter, middle, or long-distance runner? Is there really such a thing as a speed gene? Or does that idea come from the same place as unicorns? We'll bring you the latest inside info, so to speak, on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate! They're in the gate! In the gate! They're in the gate! It's a head-bobbing finish! This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. It's fairly common knowledge nowadays that genes provide all the instructions for how to build and regulate living things, plant and animal. Your hair color, eye color, how tall you are, etc. All those things come from genes. But what about qualities like athletic ability? How much of athletic ability in animals, including humans, is due to what's been commonly called God-given talent, which you could call genetic? The horse racing community certainly backs this idea. That's why there are very high prices paid at thoroughbred auctions. But how much of success in humans, let's say, is due to one person being more dedicated and practicing longer and harder than the next person? So what about racehorses? Is there a gene or a series of genes that control athletic ability in horses? Is even the will to win, as we often say of horses, genetic in nature? It sounds a little bit like looking for the Holy Grail, the lost city of Atlantis, or Shangri-La, but evidence is starting to show that there might just be a speed gene. So we figured that with bloodlines all the rage as the Keeneland September sale is going on, it would be a timely topic to discuss. With us to dive into the topic is Dr. Emmeline Hill, senior author of a 2012 study that traced the origin of the so-called speed gene. Dr. Hill is a genomics scientist at University College in Dublin, Ireland, and also co-founder of a company called Equinome, which has developed the Equinome Speed Gene Test. And we're pleased to welcome for the first time here to Win the Gate, Dr. Emmeline Hill. So your study points to a specific speed gene, the result of a genetic mutation in a single British mare 300 or so years ago. What does that gene do to separate speedy horses from non-speedy horses? So we found that the speed gene or variation in the speed gene, which means mutations or changes, can have an effect on a number of functional phenotypes or have a number of functional effects. First of all, we've shown in a number of studies, not only in our own, but researchers in Japan have shown that it controls the development of the muscle during the early stages of training in the young thoroughbred. This is not alike, but not dissimilar from the effect that myostatin has in other species. The reason we first started looking at it, in fact, was because we knew that mutations in the myostatin gene in other species, in cattle, sheep, pigs, and so on, had very pronounced effects on the muscling 
So, for instance, mutations in the myostatin gene are responsible for the double muscling that is seen in Belgian blue cattle. So while it's not quite severe an effect in horses, the, must, or the, the gene seems to have the same function in that it controls the development of muscle. So horses that are the CC type tend to develop more quickly when they are in the training environment. So there is a relationship between the environment and the gene. It seems to stimulate the change. So that's one effect. The other that was shown by a group in the University of Minnesota is that it seems to influence the laying down of the different muscle fiber types. Type uh, 1 fibers and type 2 fibers are also known as slower fast-twitch fibers. Type Two fibers are more aerobic, the endurance type fibers that are that support uh, endurance exercise and type two fibers or fast twitch fibers are those that are required for more sprint type or power exercise. And we think that this is the you know, this is the case for genes contributing to all performance traits. It's not that genes are contributing to the racing performance overall per se, but that underpin all of the different adaptations, the different anatomical, metabolic, and physiological adaptations that are required to produce an elite racehorse. One of Dr. Hill's partners on the Equinome project we mentioned earlier is noted Irish trainer Jim Bolger, who's won a number of important European races. Give us an example of how his attention to genetic testing has paid off for him. Yeah, well, actually, there's a more recent example than that. Jim Bolger had the winner of the Group 1 National Stakes race here in Ireland, which is a highly prestigious race for two-year-olds. And inside it, it's Beckford on the near side from Verbal Dexterity. Russell Povich back in third place as they race inside the last half furlong. Verbal Dexterity on the far side of Beckford. And it's Verbal Dexterity and Kevin Manning going to win the National Stakes and wins it decisively about four lengths or so. That horse is verbal dexterity. He's now the highest rated two-year-old colt in Europe. Um, and Jim has high hopes for him being champion two-year-old this season. He was bred on the basis of the Equinome results for his and his sire. Just so that uh, you're aware, um, Jim has given me permission to talk openly about this horse. And, you know, we, we're very careful about not disclosing the results of horses without the agreement of, our, uh, of, of the owner. The stallion vocalized as a CC and the mare was a TT. What does that mean? So that means that, so first of all, if you start with the mare, the mare is a TT. And Jim's preference would be to have, uh, to produce um, a higher proportion of either CC or CT horses. Because that means that they have a greater opportunity as two-year-olds to prove themselves at an early stage. But also as CTs, they have the opportunity to race over the middle distances later on as three-year-olds. So CC is for long muscle fibers and TT are short muscle fibers? Sorry, no, we should go back, backtrack a little bit. The CC horses are best suited to short distance sprint racing, CTs to middle distance, and TT to longer distance. So Jim decided a long time ago, back in 2009, that it, once he saw the data that we had produced, that it would be in his best interest to produce a greater proportion of CC and CT foals from his mare crop. So um, when he sees a brood mare that is a TT, he tries to avoid producing another TT foal from that horse. And the only way to do that, to be sure of that, is to send a TT mare to a CC stallion. And that ensures that the only 
possible outcome of that breeding is that the foal would be a CT. So Jim chose Vocalized, one of his stallions, who's a CC uh, for that mare, and produced this horse, Verbal Dexterity, who we know is a CT. And I suppose that's a, that's a very a recent and good example of how this um, information has been used to produce a champion racehorse. Dr. Emmeline Hill is a genomics scientist at University College in Dublin, Ireland, and is nice enough to join us here on In the Gate. There's a song that came out around seven or so years ago called Remember the Name with lyrics that say 10% luck, 20% skill, 15% concentrated power of will. In other words, success is not just hereditary. It also takes more factors like dedication to training and heart. So, Dr. Hill, how much of those kinds of things does your study take into account from a genetic standpoint? Well, interestingly, we're, um, we have a scientific paper that is being reviewed at the moment where we performed a study where we looked at the genetics of horses that actually go on to have a race course career versus those horses that never have a race course start. And what we found is that a gene that is associated with the chance of having a race course start is actually a gene that's been shown in rodents to be involved in the feedback response to the, the will to exercise voluntarily, so voluntary exercise. Mice and rats can run on these little wheels, treadmills, and uh, we found that this gene, the same gene that's found in mice that's associated with voluntary exercise also seems to be appearing um, in horses for this trait. So I strongly believe that there are behavioral contributions to performance attributes in horses. That's probably one, and it's uh, certainly something that we're looking at. We are looking at. We have a PhD student at the moment whose sole focus for the next four years is to delve into that very question. That notwithstanding, what else have you learned about the so-called speed gene since that initial study came out years ago? And at the time, we were rather surprised, and I think others were probably even more surprised than we were, that a single gene would have such a large and profound effect on a performance trait in the thoroughbred. Nobody was expecting that. Nobody was expecting that there would be a single gene that would have such a, a powerful effect. Um, what we had expected is that there would be multiple genes all contributing in an additive fashion to the overall performance trait. But the speed gene is uh, particular in that it, it can't determine whether, whether an individual is likely to be an elite performer or not, uh, but it does determine and define the distance for that individual. So what we found to our surprise is that the more research we do and the more research other uh, laboratories and other research groups do, the stronger our initial claims actually become. And that's quite extraordinary. Generally what happens is that uh, you make a scientific discovery and the more you research it, it's more, a bit like opening a Pandora's box. And the more that you look at it, the less strong your uh, original claims are. But surprisingly, the more research we do, the more horses that we look at, the stronger it becomes. So what we've found subsequently is that it does actually relate to speed. It's not just distance. We've measured horses in training that using heart rate monitors and GPS systems to actually measure speed and the gallops. And we find that um, CC horses are indeed faster than their TT counterparts. We found also that translates into how much people are willing to pay for these horses in the sales ring. So we've looked at breeze-up sales or 
two-year-old sales in uh, North America and we've looked at yearling sales in Australia and consistently people are spending more money on the CC types. That's probably because those CC types are developing earlier um, as I mentioned about the muscle growth at early stages and that they are looking the part earlier on and that translates into how much people are willing willing to give in, in the sales ring. We now also know what is the actual mutation that's uh, that's causing it and the mechanism by which the gene is having the effect on these uh, on these traits that's probably a bit more of a technical finding um, we're continuing to investigate and understand the various different influences that the that the gene is having but not only myostatin it's important to point out as i said it's not just a single gene that's contributing to the overall performance trait. We've done quite a lot of work to using thousands of samples at this point. We have um, over 12,000 samples in our database that we can interrogate to understand genes for performance. And we are really at a stage now where we can quite clearly pick out the genetic markers and the genes that are contributing to other traits that might be relevant. In your world and the people with whom you come in contact, how many trainers and horsemen, percentage-wise, do you think subscribe now to the idea that genetic information can help them? And how many do you think are resisting it still? Gosh, I'm not sure that I can give you a percentage. What I can say is that my company, um, Plus Vital, has clients in over 20 different countries in all of the major bloodstock regions of the world. And we have not only trainers, but owners, bloodstock agents using the information to inform decision making. I would imagine that we have really only at this point captured a, a fraction of the market interest in, in terms of people who are actively participating and using genetic testing. I don't think that that's a reflection necessarily of a belief in, in genetics, that there are underlying genes contributing to traits. I think it's potentially maybe that there's a culture in the industry of a way of doing things. And we have to remember, you know, this is a long established industry that is steeped in tradition and people have been selecting and producing champion racehorses for hundreds of years and doing so extremely successfully. So a new idea, which is quite an abstract concept for many who don't understand genetics and it's not a simple science, by any manner of means. It's a giant leap to take on a new idea like this. But what we would advocate, and we always have, is that it's another part of the puzzle. There are many, many different things that have to come together. Our genetics is not designed to replace the existing knowledge of pedigrees or of horsemanship that uh, exists in the industry. It's designed to sit alongside that and to complement and to assist with decision-making, not to make decisions. It'll be very interesting to see, as you alluded to earlier, if and when this sort of information will start showing up in books at Arcana and Keeneland and other places where auctions are held. Very, very interesting. Dr. Emmeline Hill, thank you so much for a few minutes on this topic. Thank you very much. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, we'll continue the international theme by assessing the impact of international races on the Breeders' Cup and Kentucky Derby. So don't go away.
Welcome back to In the Gate. Continuing the international theme, there have been a number of Breeders' Cup races run outside the United States where the winner has automatically gained a berth in the Breeders' Cup World Championship. The Kentucky Derby has also implemented a road to the Derby going through Europe. They already had one going through Japan. What impact do these international events have on races held here in the United States. For that and other topics, we welcome back to Win the Gate for the first time in quite a while our good friend Bill Finley, who operates the Thoroughbred Daily News. So, Bill, these international races that qualify for the Breeders' Cup and the Kentucky Derby, like Ordak Dan from Chile qualifying for the Breeders' Cup Mile, for example, what impact is that realistically going to have for the way these race fields shape up? Well, what is really happening here is that the racetracks, the Breeders' Cup, the Triple Crown, they're not so much interested, Barry, in the horses coming from these off-the-beaten-path places. They're interested in the simulcasting. The international simulcasting market is huge these days. I don't know what the exact figure of it is, but when they ran a Japanese horse in the Arc de Triomphe a couple of years ago, they bet at least $10 million on the Arc de Triomphe. But what they've discovered is that if they don't have a horse from one of these places, the fans don't have much interest in betting on it. So even if you can get some 30 or 40 to one shot to come over from a South American country, to come over from Europe, to come over from Japan, there is a ton of money to be made in the international simulcasting market. So you're going to see more and more of this. People want foreign horses because they want foreigners to be interested in betting on their races. So much for make America great again, then. I mean, I wonder (laughs) when you're going to start to hear the grumblings from the first American horse, let's say, who doesn't qualify for the Kentucky Derby because there has to be room for a horse coming from Europe, how that whole thing is going to go down. Well, they, they would have a valid point. First of all, I've never gotten too worried about the 18th, 19th, and 20th horse making it into the Kentucky Derby because those are the horses that are going to be 50 to 1 anyways. But yeah, if if you're sitting there at number 20 and some horse wins the pre-do-whatever from out of some weird race nobody's ever heard of in France, I think you would have a beef. But it's just like everything else in the world. You know, it's about money. It's about the bottom line. It's about business and it's about growing the sport and the u.s markets are pretty much tapped i I mean there's not much more we can do right now at this point without some very very creative thinking to increase betting in the united states matter of fact for the most part it's either flat or going down so the the tracks do have an incentive to get these foreigners involved in the racing and you know i can certainly see where they're coming from For those of us who actually do care about who's running in which races, it's been a pretty muddled three-year-old picture so far, as you know, and there really aren't too many salvos left to be fired here. Where are you when it comes to deciding who's in the lead for champion three-year-old and potentially horse of the year? 
Well, that's a question I can better answer after the Pennsylvania Derby. I mean, the three-year-old picture is just an absolute mess. We all know that. There's only one horse that's won two grade one races, and that's always dreaming. And it's almost certain that he won't run again this year. So he's not going to add to his body of work. He also has an awful lot of losses on his scorecard. So it's wide open right now to anybody. Um, As we speak, the connections of West Coast have not 100% committed to the Pennsylvania Derby, but I think they're pretty much 98% committed to it. I think if he wins the Pennsylvania Derby, he will be three-year-old champion just based on the what have you done for me lately kind of theory. And one thing about the three-year-olds, and I could be wrong, but I don't expect any of them to have a prayer in the Breeders' Cup Classic because they're just not good enough to be Gunrunner and especially not good enough to be Arrowgate if the real Arrowgate shows up. So I think they're all running for third or fourth money in the Breeders' Cup Classic. So we're going to either see the three-year-old championship decided in the Pennsylvania Derby or if that race is won by a 50-to-1 shot with no other credentials, then you know we can all just punt. Then it's anyone's guess. Our good friend Bill Finley of the Thoroughbred Daily News is with us here on In the Gate. Now, he is on his way, as we record this, to one of the great spots in all of racing in the country, Kentucky Downs. And it brought up a point to me that doesn't make any sense. You and I have both been to some of these quarter horse tracks that run these sham fake horse races to try to keep the rule intact that they have offered live racing in order to continue casino gaming. And they're doing it on the cheap as minimally as possible. And the thought always occurs, I'm talking about places like Gretna and Oxford and Hialeah. I've been kicked out of all of them, by the way. As well, that, we'll have a lot more to say about that at another point. But I always wondered why these places, since they are big into gambling, why wouldn't they go the Kentucky Downs route? Do less is more. Don't have racing all year. Kentucky Downs does not. And they have a casino. But when they do it, it's like Royal Ascot. And it's a big deal. And it gives their high rollers something fancy to take their spouses or significant others to and get all dressed up and whatnot. Why would they not all embrace the Kentucky Downs model? Well, I think there's one major difference in that Kentucky Downs is owned and managed by people particularly Corey Johnson, who love horse racing. So one of the problems this sport has is that in, in the marriage between casinos and racetracks, many racetracks now are run by not horse racing people, but casino guys, including some of these you know backwater tracks in Florida that you just mentioned. They don't give a hoot about horse racing. As a matter of fact, they, they wish they would go away. So they're not interested in horse racing. They're not interested in promoting horse racing. They're not interested in giving horse racing a chance. Kentucky Downs is owned and run by people who like the game. It's that simple. Um, the Stronach Group, which is uh, an outfit that has done you know, a lot of good things for the sport and is really trying hard, it all emanates from the top. Frank Stronach loves horse racing, and therefore the people that work under him he hires people that love horse racing, and they try hard. There's a lot of places where 
uh, people don't care about the game and they're wanting, wanting the racetracks. And it's a very dangerous thing. So the Kentucky Downs model, yes, is working marvelously. You know, I don't know what various laws they have here in Kentucky versus Florida. I, I doubt in Kentucky where, you know, horse racing is so ingrained in the state, they could get away with running one of these sham meets like they do down in Florida. But, you know, they're very proud of what they do. You know, they couldn't do this, as you mentioned, 75 days a year, but they run five days a year. They've got all this money and it's still remarkable to I'm handicapping a race to an allowance race with a purse of $145,000. Just absolutely remarkable and good for them. It's, it's become a very special place in horse racing. If you're not betting on Kentucky Downs, you're not paying attention. It's the best betting racetrack in the country by a mile. I, it is definitely on my bucket list to get to Kentucky Downs at some point. So, Mr. Finley, as always, thank you so, so much. My pleasure, Barry. Our thanks to Bill Finley and Dr. Emmeline Hill. Graham Motion's one of the most respected trainers in the nation, who two years ago, for the first time in his career, had one of his horses test positive for a very small drug violation. That verdict was overturned, and now it appears that the basic process of determining guilt in medication violations is being called into legislative review. A Kentucky court said the threshold rules are not really based on science, and legally, there's nothing a trainer can do. Because the rules say trainers are on the hook, no matter what the reason. That's why Graham Motion took this verdict to court. He feels if trainers cannot challenge doping violations, state commissions will soon act like Voldemort. I think it's fair to keep the responsibility on the trainer, but he or she should not be barred from an appeal. The science issue also can be vetted, but it would take getting everyone in a room, which doesn't seem real. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.